1: I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitated support meetings for families and individuals who've been impacted by gender issues.
0: We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture.
1: Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens.
0: This is the last episode in our Pioneers series, and the second interview we did with Dr. Paul Vasey. If you haven't heard our conversation with Paul in episode 57, I recommend you go back and listen to that one first, as we build on a lot of the ideas and concepts introduced there. Today, we continue reflecting on the way that Western activism interacts with research and our interpretation of the Fafafine, the Mouche, and other third gender individuals from different countries. We talk about the implication of the fact that the Fafafine, for example, don't actually identify as women and we talk about whether there are conflicting rights issues in places like Samoa. Paul also explains how Western funding organizations that mean well can end up imposing foreign concepts onto other cultures. We even touch on the implications for things like puberty blockers and early medical intervention here in the West. It was a real pleasure to wrap up our series with Paul, and we hope you'll enjoy this interview, and stick around next week for the post-series analysis with me and Stella. Here's our discussion with Dr. Paul Vasey. We are back with Paul Vasey. Am I pronouncing it correct? Because I think I called you Paul Vasey last
2: time. Yes. No, you pronounced it correct this time. Vasey. Paul Vasey. Yeah. Hello, Paul. Hello. Yes, as you said
0: just before we hit record, back by popular
1: demand.
2: Mm-hmm. Looks that way. <laughs>
1: Um we were we were um absolutely intrigued by the last episode when when we did the first episode with you which was the first of the pioneer series because it went so many directions that we didn't quite anticipate and that's why we've had you back to kind of go okay now we've had time to kind of digest quite a few concepts that you brought up we're going mm-hmm. to get a chance to kind of go go deeper um <laughs> i i think uh we've been we've had our minds blown so many times during this series it's just been an extraordinary um, few months exploring all this. And I think I didn't quite appreciate just how wide the knowledge base was, how many different directions it went. And now I know better. I'm more <laughs> educated. And I'm delighted you've come on for a second go with us.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me back. I'm really honoured
0: so we, we kind of talked about you, you writing some interesting piece recently, and you had some ideas from this uh, piece that you wanted to discuss. So I'm, I'm wondering if we can start there. I mean, we, we had talked about the Fafafine um, kind of laughing at you when you asked them whether they were male or female. They clearly know their biological sex. But we didn't really expand on the fact that, you know, what does it imply for them to have their own name, the Fafafine, and not, for example, being Women 2.0 or something like that? They are Fafafine, that's distinct. Can you say more about that and like what what the implications are?
2: Well, I think that the the fact that there is this unique uh, gender category for feminine same sex attracted males and the fact that they're not um you know they're not trying to be women they don't identify as women they actively reject that that label they say we're we're not women we're fa-fa-fine, we're not women we're mushe um you know in reference to my my field site in in um in southern mexico the fact that they're they and and at the same time um the fact that they, they fully recognize, they're fully aware that they're male-bodied, that they were born male, and that this state of maleness is immutable. You know, you go, going in and having some sort of feminization uh, procedures, um, you know, hormonal procedures or much more rarely surgical ones, they... they these procedures don't transform them into women. They don't transform them into females. They are cognizant of that, and the individuals around them in the local communities are cognizant of that. So we have a situation where these individuals have their their own gender role. They don't think that they're women, and they fully recognize that they're male, so they're not trying to be anything that they're, they're not. And um, consequently, I think that one of the, the outcomes of this is that, you know, um, traditionally, uh, gender dysphoria has been relatively uncommon in these sorts of cultural settings. And I've, I've published data that, that, that speaks to that, uh, that issue. I think as well. I guess because they you know re- reject the label women and they recognize themselves as male bodied um that has implications for you know some of the some of the debates that are currently going on in the west for example um those perspectives in the, in these other cultures have implications with respect to sports participation so we can take Samoa for for, for an, as an example. In Samoa, Fafafine, they do not play on women's sports teams. If they play sports, and there is one particular sport that's very popular with Fafafine, it's called netball. If they play uh, netball, which, which is a team sport, they play with other Fafafine or they play on mixed Fafafine men's teams. Um, so there'll be a mixture of men and a mixture of Fafafine playing playing on the team and playing against other similar teams. But they they don't compete against women and they don't play on women's netball teams. And they you know, if you, you ask them about this, they just they just come out and say, Well, it wouldn't be fair. We have male bodies. Um and indeed the the <clears throat> the um, the prime minister or the former prime minister of Samoa who was a huge or is a huge supporter of fafafine he 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 is the the patron of the Samoan fafafine association he's basically come out and said you know these international sporting events where you have um where you have male to female uh trans individuals, trans women, um, competing uh, against um, natal females or girls, um, he, he he's come out and said that's unfair. So from a sort of Samoan cultural perspective, that's not considered to be fair or the way to go. Um, and w- w- within the culture, when, as I said, when Fafafina are competing in sports, they're doing it either – against each other or um, on mixed men's Fafafina teams.
1: And can I ask how, how much do they know about, let's say, the new phenomenon of, of trans women competing in sports? I know that, you know, you've said that they said it's not fair, but are they aware of this new movement and are they commenting and are, is, is, it, is it hot in that country, if you follow me?
2: Well, I, I, I mean the the last time I was there prior to COVID, I haven't been able to get back because of COVID to to Samoa. But the last time I was there would have been January twenty twenty, and it was right around that time that I think the person's name was Laurel Hubbard. I think that's the individual's yeah. name. Um. Laura.
1: Laura Hubbard. I think. Yeah, I think that. Uh, um,
2: New Zealand weightlifter. Is that correct? And I think that yeah. the Samoan um, women weightlifter came in second, as uh, to, to this Laurel Hubbard, as a result of this individual oh, being allowed to yeah. compete. And so, this was really looked down upon. Um, I didn't hear anyone in Samoa say that this was okay or that this was fair. Uh, the Fafafine didn't think that this was fair. The, the, You know, many Fafafine I spoke to, I wouldn't say this was a, pr- a primary focus of conversation among people, but people were aware of it. People thought it was unfair. And the prime minister commented publicly that this was unfair and that Fafafine, so he was referring to this other individual as... Uh, fafafine or like a fafafine, that these kinds of individuals should be competing either against each other or with um, with men. He even said, you know, um, if we have a fafafine competition, I'll, I'll send you lots of fafafine from Samoa to compete. In no way could the prime minister be be, be deemed. Um, um, you know transphobic he's the patron of the fafafine association he's a big supporter and he's spoken many times about the importance of fafafine for samoa for the community for the family so this isn't this isn't coming from a transphobic place on his part
0: another question about kind of western issues in samoa um somebody else had asked in our youtube comments about whether or not Fafafine and just Samoans in general, you know, are perhaps now um, exploring American conceptions of transgender, what that means, gender dysphoria, what that means, and is it, are you aware of whether or not that has an impact on body dysmorphia or gender dysphoria specifically? Like if if these uh, kind of ideas of gender dysphoria that originated here in some ways have impacted the way Fafafine experienced themselves?
2: Yeah. I mean, definitely there, I think there's more, more of a sense that there are, uh, there, there are these other sort of related phenomenon out there in the West. It's really common for Fafafine to ask me, um, are there Fafafine in your culture? You know, where you come from there. So they're curious. Um, You know, so they would be aware of someone like, for example, Caitlyn Jenner um, or Jazz Jennings, maybe, maybe they might be aware of those kinds of individuals um, and they might refer to them as trans or trans women. Um, but I don't get the sense that this increasing awareness of uh, sort of trans issues in Western culture is affecting how Fafafine identify, which is as Fafafine and not women or trans women. Um, And I don't get the sense that there's like a a rise in, um, in in sort of gender dysphoria or dysphoria related to their bodies. Um, It's, it's really, I think I might've said in the last interview, it's, it's really very common. If you ask Fafafine, would you, would you be interested in a sex change if it was paid for? And if there were, you know, no. Um, how did I usually phrase it? If it was paid for and there were no medical consequences, so trying to make it as e- easy as possible. And the, the the typical response is, "No, I'm happy in my body. I'm happy doing it." The, they might say something like, "I'm happy doing it this way in my," you know. So there, I and I I think maybe the the reason for that comfort is because it, it goes back to this idea that there is um there is a distinct gender category that kind of um in, in, in which they, they they fit and um which is culturally intelligible which people people can people people un, can wrap their head around what a fafafini is that that makes sense in that cultural context there's sort of a place for them Again, not a specialized role, but just a, 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 a sort of conceptual space. And um, again, it, it mean that conceptual space means well, they're not men, but they're not women either. They're this other thing, and this other thing uh, is involves femininity, but it doesn't um, it doesn't mean that you can't have a male body. Uh, and so, you put all that together and it it doesn't sort of create the conditions where there would be dysphoria about not uh, dysphoria about about your body or about about your gender that said i think i said in the last interview you know there there is there is a small tiny tiny percentage of individuals who feel dysphoria related to their body but we we talked about how probably it doesn't matter how accommodating the culture is if individuals feel that they're in the wrong body, it doesn't matter how accepting or tolerant we all are. That feeling is there and it's and cultural accommodation isn't going to change that, but they're the minority.
1: Um, I wonder, Paul, what do you think we could learn from Samoa? If, if we could learn what, what should we learn? I wonder.
2: Well, I mean, I, I think that one of the most important things that we can learn is just uh, some greater tolerance towards, um, you know, gender diverse individuals. Um, I think that when these sorts of individuals are integrated into the community and the family, um, it, it's a win for every everyone, um, and there's just this ease around interacting with these individuals and, and them taking their functional places in society and in the family. Um, I think all that is good. And I think I said in the last interview too, like if, if I was a Fafafine, I always thought like Samoa would be a really good place to, 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 to live because you, you are more likely in that kind of a cultural environment to be, a really full member of society uh and a full member who can sort of move through the through the society with a large degree of ease which which would probably be desirable for individuals that that identify in that way um, if what you're asking me though <laughs> is do I think that the way for the West to go is to have these alternate gender categories. Um, I'm not sure because I don't think you can necessarily just take um, these ideas from a non-Western culture and then impose them onto a Western culture. I think that those, in order, in order for those systems to work, they have to sort of develop organically. Uh, So I don't, um, I'm skeptical about the imposition of these ideas into a Western setting and um, that then resulting in sort of a gender paradise for everyone. I, I, I doubt it.
0: Yeah. I really want to talk about this kind of question of cultural cross pollination and, and some of the ways that we might, Impose a kind of utopian vision on these other cultures you mentioned that. Can you say more about the way Western academics or Western activists might be doing a little bit of that projection?
2: Sure, yeah, I don't think you have to look very far on the internet or on um you know through various sorts of uh, online publications to see that uh, gender diverse individuals in non western cultures they're are commonly depicted in these really idealized terms, even to the point where, I mean, the writers are using words like they're esteemed, they're revered. And um, I just don't think that that is the reality of their everyday lives. Now, it's true that there are very circumscribed events like beauty pageants or parades or uh, parties um, where the community might come together to honor these sorts of individuals in in one way or another. Um, But outside of those very, very circumscribed events, these individuals are really not treated, at least in the places I work, they're not treated uh, any differently than, you know, your typical man or your your typical woman. So I do wonder sometimes, you know, when, when people are reading these articles, if they think there's some sort of a gender utopia out there where, where these individuals that they might characterize as trans are sort of at the top of the social hierarchy because they're, they're apparently, according to these articles, esteemed and revered um and that is just a kind of a mischaracterization of what's actually going on in these places. Are they socially accepted to a greater degree than what we often see in the west? yes, absolutely, but they're not they're not treated as sort of um demigods or, or uh um, they're they're just like everyone else, which is in keeping with the kind of collectivistic societies that they 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 live in.
1: Um, could I ask you? You've mentioned the Mouchet a couple of times. Is there any um, interesting differences or you know points that we haven't heard about? Because I know we've heard a lot about the Fafafine.
2: Yeah, you know, um, we've published. Well, I mean, originally th- my my research started with the Fafafine in Samoa back in 2003, and then I wanted to I wanted to work in a in a in a very distant culture that also had these feminine males that were same sex attracted and recognized as a third gender or, or an alternative gender, and my reason for doing that was because I wanted to. I wanted to triangulate my research in Samoa. I wanted to know are the results I'm getting in Samoa just particular to Samoa? Are they very culturally specific or are the results I'm getting more generalizable to really distantly related places like um like the Ismo region in Oaxaca, Mexico where I work, down in the south with the with the Muche? And m- almost all of the research we've done we've w- that we've replicated in in this area in Mexico we're getting pretty much the the same results as we get in Samoa so for example we sh- we've shown that they tend to be um, like fafafine Mushe tend to be more feminine in in childhood they tend to have more cross-sex wishes they tend to have more older biological brothers uh, they occur at a about the same population prevalence rate. Uh, they tend to have more separation anxiety in childhood. So the, the, the similarities between Mushe and fafafine are striking, but I'm not sure that that should really be as much of a surprise um, as it might be to some people. Because to me, what that says is that there's this deep structure to to male same sex sexual attraction, and that regardless of the culture in which you're socialized, there are certain features associated with male same sex sexual attraction that are cross culturally universal, despite the vast cross cultural variability um, which to me says well that that seems like there's something biological going on there as opposed to something pertaining to unique cultural patterns of socialization. Um, I I guess one of the differences between Samoa and, and Uchtan is that my sense is that in Samoa, the men who have sex with Fafafine are more relaxed about it. It's not something they're, terribly embarrassed to talk about with me. Um, I might, I remember one guy was in a plantation interviewing and um, I asked him if he had sex with Fafafine and I think his response was something like, sure, why not? <laughs> so there, there's just, there's, there's not a, you don't get the sense that there's shame Associated with it in Samoa. Whereas in, in in the istmo region of Oaxaca, um men tend to be a lot more uh reticent about admitting that they've had sex with Fafafine. It's not that all of them are, but it just seems to be more difficult to get guys to Guys that you know have had sex with Moushe to admit that they have, so there is that cultural difference that I that I've noticed.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I th- I noticed a certain kind of pattern in our comments and stuff of people saying things along the lines of, you know, this conversation was interesting, but it was kind of depressing because uh, I think the implication is that you know, you can't be considered a man if you have these feminine traits and you have same-sex attraction. And so I think, I mean, I, I think that comes from the fact that in the West we have a place for being a gay man. And I think we understand implicitly that that could mean more feminine behavior, more female typical preferences or whatnot. So, um, you know, again, this kind of col- cultural relativism question comes up. I'm wondering how do you address that because I'm assuming mm. you hear that from students and stuff too, like a question mm-hmm. along those lines.
2: Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I think I think it's just important to keep in mind that I'm everything I'm saying to you is descript- descriptive. It's not uh, prescriptive. You know, I'm, I'm not. I'm. Uh, I'm just describing the situation there and and the. The way, the way that feminine same-sex attracted men are interpreted or raised, uh, what they mean in a Western cultural context, um, I'm not. I'm not trying to suggest that that's any better or any worse than how those things are understood in Samoa. These are just different cultural, quote unquote, solutions to the presence of unusual males, unusual males in the sense that they're not typically masculine and they're not typically opposite sex attracted. So they're unusual in being feminine and, and same sex attracted. And so different cultures have different responses, different frameworks for understanding what do these exceptions mean and um um yeah i'm not, i'm not trying to suggest um you know one of these br- conceptual frameworks for understanding male femininity and same-sex attraction is any necessarily better or worse than than another um probably each of them have their benefits and each of them have their costs um that's nature of culture culture potentiates behavior and it constrains behavior so um there there is no sort of perfect um cultural um response to 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 all of this stuff and i would just say that in 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 samoa though um male same-sex attraction it doesn't really mean anything um it it doesn't sort of have the same kind of meaning wrapped around it that we have here in the west so an individual can be same sex attracted but m- masculine and they're just considered a man it's that male femininity ingredient that really marks an individual as a fafafine so i've interviewed some not many because there aren't many but i've interviewed some cisgender you know Actually, remarkably masculine, um, Samoan guys that are same sex attracted, and um, they—it's it, interesting. They don't really—I mean, they—they—they—they they, they, they don't dislike fafafine. They get along with them, but I think that in many ways, at least my impression from observing observing them is that they don't necessarily think they have much in common with them.
1: Um, can I ask, like stats wise, does any of this kind of, um, does any of it reflect on a, on a, on a, on a line that, let's say, the, the number of, of gay people in, in Western culture versus Samoa or, or Mexico or whatever, and also the number of feminine? I don't know if you can go that, if you can do that in Western culture, but is there, is there interesting statistical kind of analysis going on with this?
2: Well, in a in a place like in, in, in the West, it would be cisgender same sex attracted males that would predominate, and the the feminine or trans same sex attracted males would be a minority. It's it's flipped in in Samoa, and you get feminine same sex attracted males, fafafine, who are by far more common, and then you you have this tiny number of cisgender or masculine same sex attracted men that if you you want to find them. You really, really, really have to hunt for them. They're there, but you really have to put the time and energy into looking for them. Um, but if if we just if we're just talking about male and male androphilia, male sexual attraction to adult males, then we've published research that shows that in Samoa and in um, in in the Isthmo region of Oaxaca, Mexico, the population prevalence rate is pretty much the same as what you see in the West. So we're talking about like 2 to 3%, under 5%. So in other words, these I guess one of the implications of that is that these groups like Fafafine and Mouche that are getting labeled as trans by certain people in the West, their population prevalence rate is the same as gay guys in the West not the same as trans people in the west which tells uh-huh. you well that's, which then well yeah then it raises the question well are we dealing with cultural culturally variant variable expressions of the same trait the trait being male androphilia but if that trait develops in this environment you get a feminine adult male If that trait develops in another environment, like in the West, you get a more masculine or cisgender presenting uh, adult male.
0: We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for this show. And we're grateful to Rhyme and
1: Genspect for supporting us. RIME, or Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics, is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit RethinkIME.org to learn more.
0: And Genspect is an international alliance of parents and professional groups whose aim is to advocate for parents of gender-questioning children
1: and young people. If you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts and special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Now back to the show.
0: This is really important. This is what I was trying to get across when we interviewed the Dutch researchers who kind of began the protocol of blocking puberty. I posed this question about how cultural influences might be contributing to the spike of people we see that are young and female and gender dysphoric. And um, the way they responded to that is, well, you know, gender variant individuals are common in every culture and have always been. And we didn't really ask them this question, but my follow-up is Well, yeah, but they're not all medicalized and they're not all trans, right? And what you're saying, Paul, is that prevalence rates of androphilia in males are really stable. Mm -hmm. But what the culture does with how they Mm -hmm. understand that depends on time, place, so on and so forth. So we might be in a period of time, at least here in the West right now, where Mm -hmm. we interpret male androphilia in childhood as a kid you have to block puberty and transition, Mm -hmm. Whereas maybe that's not the only possible way to understand that child's experience.
2: Right. So with that kind of a child, of course they're not expressing same sex, sexual attractions uh, in, in in childhood, but what they are expressing are behaviors that are strongly correlated with uh, adult same sex attraction, males, things like um, aversion to rough and tumble play or preferences for little girls as play partners, or uh, a desire to dr- dress up and play princess. So the those, I guess, female typical behaviors uh, when they present in a little boy are currently being coded or interpreted as this kid is trans. Whereas in the past... That kid would have been probably discouraged or mocked for uh, there would have been a negative reaction to those sorts of behaviors. And the kid would learn, uh, I need to stop doing that and try to behave in a more masculine manner. And then those kids, um, they grow up to be gay men.
0: And sometimes in in adolescence, these kids are starting to express same-sex attraction. So that might be known once they get a little bit older
2: in adolescence. In adolescence, Mm -hmm. yes. Yeah. But I I, I guess the key point is that that I think we're all trying to communicate here is that what that pre-homosexual feminine boy means depends on the cultural context in which they're developing and that so we've been talking here about this cross-cultural context but i think sasha what you've sort of introduced into the conversation is the important idea of historical change right and so we we have to take into consideration these cross-cultural issues across space but it's also important to take into consideration historical change through time in terms of what boyhood femininity means.
1: Mm-hmm. I kind of often wonder when when we spoke about this the last time, I am I, quite friendly with some lesbians and they got quite <laughs> they quite got they got very energized, frankly. By one part of our conversation, which was mm-hmm. along the lines of that there's much less, there's much fewer in number, percentage-wise, lesbian, um, women than there is mm-hmm. gay men, and you were mm-hmm. quite definitive about it, and I was, I, I kind of argued your point, you, just so you know, <laughs> and I said, no, no, he knows his stuff, and actually, mm-hmm. this is replicated in the in the animal population. And I was I was told on in various different platforms that this was mm-hmm. quite clearly a case of female socialisation and it was quite clearly a case of women not being allowed to be lesbian or not being free to be lesbian. And um, so I'm bringing it up f- for mm. them because mm-hmm. I remember you as being really clear about, you knew your stuff and you had studied your Japanese monkeys and it was really... That was how I remembered it. So I'd, I'd love yeah. you to answer to that because I know they're going to say this is just not true that the numbers are are not replicated male and female and I know you were very clear about it.
2: Yeah, well, when I say female gynophilia, female sexual attraction to adult females, I'm ta- I, I'm using that term as ex- exclusive. Uh uh, female gynophilia the way when i speak about male androphilia male sexual attraction to adult males i, I mean exclusive so w- getting back to your friends kind of the implication of what your friends are saying there is that you know female female sexuality in terms of leaning more towards a gynophilic versus an androphilic end of a spectrum that it's all a question of socialization and. um you know i think that if you look at the the literature on human sexuality there's some perhaps some merit to that perspective in the sense that there's lots of research suggesting that females are more sexually fluid that their 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 sexual um identities and their sexual fantasies and their sexual behavior are more int- are more influenced by um postnatal socialization. Um, but if you're, if, if in contrast that that's, that's not the case for, for men. And I think, I think in your interview with Mike Bailey, he talked a little bit about that, that, that there there's, there's less flexibility in men. So there, there's this sex difference in terms of sexual, what Lisa diamond, the researcher Lisa diamond would call sexual fluidity. Um. <clears throat> But the, the best research that's been done in Western populations suggests that, you know, exclusive female gynophilia is definitely less common than exclusive male androphilia. At the same time, that best research indicates that female bisexuality is far more common than male bisexuality. So it's possible that your friends and I are thinking along the same terms. We're just expressing the ideas a bit differently.
1: Yeah, fair enough. I think you're right. Um, I think it feels almost offensive to hear that for some people because it's like this, this, this is just going to be a correction that's going to happen over the next few years that um, mm-hmm. the women, basically the lesbians, will catch up on the on the gays. Well, I I think you're right. I think it's missing the bisexual equation, part of the equation, and uh, that might be the the kind of the difference, really.
2: Yeah, exactly. And 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 as I said, there's no question that female bisexuality is much more common than male bisexuality.
1: Yeah.
0: I wanted to touch a little bit more on some of these cross-cultural conversations that we've been having. Last time we were talking about how um, when media, for example, is interviewing somebody who claims to be Fafafine, but maybe they're living in Australia, for example, and were educated there and raised there, that that might give them a different perspective that isn't necessarily congruent with how many Fafafine within Samoa think about things And I want to just kind of expand on this because it's very natural for cultures to intersect, interact with each other and become somewhat porous. You know, we exchange ideas and concepts all the time. And that's a natural part of a culture evolving. It doesn't necessarily mean it has become, let's say, less pure, quote unquote, or authentic or something like that. Uh, But there's also a different thing that happens when somebody that is, particularly trying to push a Western idea from the West, who's never been to that culture, starts Mm -hmm. trying to impose those Western ideas onto the people within the culture. So, I mean, obviously, I'm I'm sure your work thinks a lot about this. Can you just talk a little bit more about this? Because I think this is such an important point to remember.
2: Definitely, you know, human history is characterized by cultural diffusion. And there are traditions that would be considered um, core aspects of a certain um, nation's identity and those traditions didn't necessarily arise in that nation so they arose due to cultural diffusion so cultural diffusion is prominent and it, it's frequent um, and we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't expect that it's it's not going to happen what I <clears throat> concerns me a bit though about this the sort of issues that you've raised is that when these places that I work um Samoa or the Istmo region in Oaxaca Mexico get discussed and <clears throat> the people that are brought in to be sort of expert commentators on these places are often um people that have never really spent much time there uh um or it's been years, if not decades since they've spent time in these places um so even if they're <clears throat> even if they were born in these places and you know they consider themselves to be local, if they've moved away and are living in have been living in western cultures for the past twenty years and really have. Um, you know, no direct contact with the local people. It's it's sort of problematic for that person to be a spokesperson for what's going on locally. And I understand why this happens. It happens because when journalists are putting together a story, it's just easier to reach out to someone who um, maybe is in your area and who can comment on on these things. Um, But I can tell you that, you know, when I'm in these places and I speak to locals, they're often not thrilled that these people that are considered to be outsiders that that aren't even living in these places, even though, again, they might be ethnically members of those communities in a diaspora, um, they, the, the locals aren't are aren't thrilled that that it wasn't locals that were contacted to be to be speaking for themselves.
1: Um I, I can speak a little bit to that insofar as being from Ireland we're a big emigrant culture and we've had a diaspora for, you know, hundreds of years. And you know, there's a concept called the plastic paddy, which is somebody who's Irish from, let's say, who lives in America would be classic or in the UK. And they, they give their strong opinions about Irish politics and it is not appreciated. Yeah, it's very yeah. much very much the same vibe. It's like, ah no, you come over here now, Patty. <laughs> we'll tell you what's what. So so I understand the context.
2: It's sort of the same situation. And I often find a lot of these people that are, you know say they're 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 not even a a member of those communities they're an outsider like me they i, I always kind of find it remarkable and amusing that they, they 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 identify themselves they self-identify as quote unquote experts uh which I I always avoid doing cuz I'm like well I can tell you about my research but I mean it's up to other people to decide if you know, I have any expertise in terms of talking about this subject. And a lot of these self-identified quote unquote experts, like I said, as far as I can tell, they spent like a couple weeks in the country or, or it's been decades and decades and decades since they've been to these places, but they still kind of have strong opinions. Um, And then if it's, if it's an actual, person who was born in one of these places, but then moved away. um, You know, it's, it's not uncommon for someone like that. That's, that's called upon to be a spokesperson to, to be an employee or to somehow be funded by certain um, agencies, I guess, that have particular agendas that they want advanced. And so, You know, you might have a situation where there is a person who is working for one of these agencies that's called upon to be an expert commentator, and that is kind of parroting a particular ideological perspective and and sort of using language and jargon and words that the locals would just, the, the locals don't speak that way. They would never, they would never talk in those terms and, um, um, the locals reaction to that is kind of, um, they laugh, they think it's kind of ridiculous.
0: And the way you say that, even like the local reaction to that, I'm Mm -hmm. guessing you're talking about pretty unanimous reactions. Like I know, for example, you know, here in America, there is no unanimous reaction to anything. I mean, we are so Mm -hmm. divided in a million ways, but are you saying that, for example, in Samoa, when you're you're talking about some of these spokespeople there's a pretty unanimous agreement among the locals that this doesn't represent us i
2: well <clears throat> i don't know if i go so far as to say unanimous i would say anyone who I, who was sort of in the know and i was having these conversations with they would sort of recognize it for for what it was that um this person was speaking with authority about a situation that they weren't necessarily living. Um, mm-hmm. I would say that there were, would be many, many, probably the majority of people in these local settings wouldn't even pay attention to this. Cause it's just not, it's not a relevant kind of, um, conversation for them to, to, to capture their attention. um, and there would be people probably in the local communities that again, are are maybe dependent to some extent, on funding from Western agencies that, again, have particular agendas in terms of sexuality and gender. And um, you know, publicly, they might parrot those agendas or that ideology. But privately, when they're sitting alone with you having a drink, um, you know, it's a different story. And they're, they're like, yeah, we, we know what we have to do to, to get the funding.
0: This is important. Can you just say more about that? Can you give some examples? Because I don't think we fully appreciate how funding plays a role into this. We're talking about cultures and all these kind of high-minded ideas. But talk about the funding and how that influences this.
2: Um, okay. So, uh, for, for example, I I remember speaking to one community, uh, leader, so, uh, a a prominent person in one of the, at one of the sites that I work at, who's a, who's a leader in one of the, the sexual gender minority communities. And they were sort of bemoaning the fact this is over lunch. They were bemoaning Mm. the fact that, um, you know in in order to sort of meet the funding criteria for some western uh, funding agency uh they were told they had to find more uh trans men now, this was in a place where that's not a tr- traditional identity, and so um, so so <laughs> so there was this um cultural myopia on the part of the the funding agency that they're 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 asking sort of for um uh, people that have this particular identity in a culture where that doesn't really exist <clears throat> and I guess the other thing that the uh, this community leader expressed to me is that you know and that I was cognizant of is that um in the west we we have this idea of an lgbt plus community but that's a very that kind of conglomeration of individuals that's a very kind of western idea that, that that this this mishmash of individuals somehow belongs together in a group if you go to many non-western cultures they don't see it, it doesn't make sense to them they're like what what does a same sex attracted woman have to do with a same sex attracted man if anything they're the the complete opposites from each other because one is interested in women and one is interested in men so it it's sort of um a head scratcher i guess for for a lot of people in non-western cultures why would you put these individuals together they don't belong together and so just that just that i don't know request demand on the part of a western funding agency to um you know we we'd we'd really like it a lot better if you you had trans men in your group implicit or underlying that kind of thinking is this idea that well these this idea of an lgbtq community is cross culturally universal when the reality is is that it's not that's a western cultural construct you can see that In these multiple different ways, there are these Western assumptions about gender and sexuality that get imposed onto people in other cultures uh, in order for them to become candidates for particular funding opportunities.
1: It's it's so ironic because, you know, we often get told that we we need to look at uh, the other cultures and to learn from them. And you're saying, no, no, we're imposing our Western ideals on these cultures. But it kind of reminds me in a different way, but it's similar that uh, we had a guest, Claire Graham, who has an intersex condition and she speaks a lot around intersex um, issues. And she made the point, which was just sh- so shocking, because in Ireland there's a, there's a kind of a quirk in Ireland where they don't talk about LGBTQ, they talk about LGBTI, and they've stuck mm-hmm. in this I into the umbrella term and, and very much pushed it in in the very kind of same kind of imposing um, way that they do with another context. And she said that um, they they did an analysis and the I of the LGBTQI plus Umbrella. It only gets one percent of the funding, and so mm-hmm. while, like you know, the L might get you know ten percent, the T gets you know phenomenal percent, and the G gets different percent. They did a whole analysis, and I get, and I actually needs the funding. If you follow me, this is a medical condition that actually needs mm-hmm. it, and so that the the funding was taken in other contexts. I would argue from the I and over to the other ones. It's just sticking in, I suppose, um, different issues into an umbrella. And when funding is at play, you're Mm -hmm. really starting to mess things around because everything gets warped when funding is, because everybody's looking for the funding. And so all sorts of things, basically good good knowledge gets warped when funding is, is at at play, I think.
2: Yeah. And I guess it's important to note, uh, like people can assemble and form groups in any way they desire. But my point True. is just that my point is just that um, you know we, we in the West we kind of assume that this um, this conglomeration of individuals LGBT is <clears throat> it's almost natural right um, it's mm. it's objective grouping of individuals but when you when you sort of zoom out and take a cross-cultural perspective, you see well that's not the case um, there's lots of cultures that don't think that this way of assembling individuals together makes any sense, and um, and consequently, we. I, I just think it's it's probably valuable to be sensitive to that, so that these Western ways of thinking aren't um, imposed upon non-Western communities that don't really don't really want to organize in this way.
0: Especially with something like the Fafafine and the Mouche. I mean at least from the way I understand your research, it's not some utopia, but people have found a functional way of living with these naturally emergent traits Mm -hmm. um, in somewhat of a compatible manner. And so Mm -hmm. it's like, I think the question of you know, relativism is a bit tricky, right? Especially when we veer into very complicated topics, something like FGM, for example, right? Like that's a different, I think, kind of question. But when you're describing cultures that have found relatively healthy way to live with these differences, these gender differences, I think it is very risky to just arbitrarily impose a Western concept of how we understand things.
2: Well, yeah, you, you, you start to wonder what, what are the consequences going to be downstream of tinkering with this cultural system? Um, Cause they might not be as optimal as the ones that are currently in place in terms of, you know, tolerance and acceptance and integration into the community and, and just overall happiness and and quality of life, which I, mm-hmm. I think are the most important uh, factors to consider. You know I I I guess I just want to hasten to add that these um just getting back to my little um story about funding agencies I'm sure these people that are working for the funding agencies they they want you know they're they're good people who want to um promote good things in the world I guess what I'm just trying to get across here is that a greater sensitivity to the local cultural traditions um, is beneficial in terms of giving us pause to think about, about the things that we take for granted as being just obvious or um, natural or um, uh, just the way things are. Because, um, again, the way we conceptualize things in the West. Uh, is not necessarily the way things are conceptualized outside the West and how people organize their lives. And uh, we want to have some sensitivity around um, not imposing our sort of um, conceptual frameworks about gender and sexuality onto other cultures, especially perhaps because, you know, there's this relentless rallying cry for diversity. So if we really, really take that seriously, then perhaps we need to uh, think a little bit more carefully about cross-cultural diversity and respecting that and recognizing that the way we think about these things in the West is 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 just one way of going about doing this. And it's not necessarily the best way or the most optimal way. Um, yeah. Yeah.
0: I also think, like you said earlier, each culture system kind of organically will evolve a way of dealing with different things. And of course, you know, we, we may have opinions on which ways are better or not. But I, I find that generally cultures do move towards, you know, more tolerance, more integration over time. I mean, that seems to be the case. I don't know if you would agree with that, but I think... I think it's so important to give individual cultures the chance to restructure their systems in the best way for the individuals who live there. I, I don't know if that feels right to you, but that kind of feels right to me.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure if um, there's this sort of um, march forward and and this progress in terms of more mm-hmm. and more tolerance. I think it depends on the culture you're in. I'm, I'm sure there are lots of people living in uh, places like Russia that wouldn't necessarily uh, agree uh, with with that sort of a statement.
1: But they might they, they might think that there's a bit of progress in the last 100 years, so I'll argue Sasha's point.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I think we, maybe we need to be a little bit cautious around this um, idea that we're sort of... Um, Marching forward in this progressive, mm, well,
1: you are right. Yeah,
2: more and more tolerance, because I think that if that tolerance and acceptance is just another social construct, it's just another way of conceptualizing <laughs> all of this. Then it can crumble and, and and disintegrate very quickly, and it can be lost. So we we can't really take that for granted. And I I do you know I I guess I just want to say as well that. um you know i think this the the idea of cultural relativism can get pushed to the point where where it's like well you know all cultures are equal and we have to um we have to you know sort of re- respect all of these differences but i would say well I, i'm i'm not so sure about that either because um you know i would i would rather i would rather see cultures that were tolerant towards um you know um equality for women and uh, Same. acceptance of uh, gay and lesbian people and acceptance of and tolerance of trans people and a willingness to integrate them into their communities. So, um, yeah, so, I mean, I think we have to be sensitive to the the, the cross-cultural and historical differences, but um, I think it's also okay to, to sort of um, put yourself out there and say well this sort of looks like it's working better than this alternative in yeah. the sense that um people in general are happier and have better quality of qualities of life and um there are fewer fewer people being victimized so
1: yeah you bring you bring a great sense of humility and knowledge it's 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 a it's a difficult combination to carry but you carry it very well yeah Thank you.
2: Thank you.
1: (laughs) we were really glad
0: to have you um here as we wrap up our pioneer series next up will be a kind of analysis that stella and i will do together but it's been a real honor to have you kind of bookend the series at the beginning and at the very end so thank you so much for your time and your energy twice
2: (laughs) yes and thank you again so much for inviting me twice i'm i'm really honored to be a a bookend
1: (laughs) that's seconded thanks for
0: joining us this week on gender a wider lens this podcast is sponsored by rhyme and genspect and listener support means a lot to us the best way to help is to
1: subscribe and review us on itunes follow us on social media and if you'd like to become a patron you'll have access to weekly transcripts of the show special q a's and you can join our listener community just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash widerlenspod. Our discussions are for educational purposes
0: only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.